It's good to be back today. I, uh, I got up this morning and tried to figure out, okay, how do I allow for the distance that we have to do? And I was sitting there, I got done with my breakfast, and I was just sitting there watching news, and, and I said, oh, I guess I, guess I got to get dressed. And, and uh, Terry said, uh, well, man, you better hurry. When are we leaving? I said, oh, about 8.30 or so. And it was, it was almost, um, whatever that time was, almost 8. And I, uh, she, she was kind of pushing me, and I said, Terry, I don't have to do my hair. Don't worry about it. I'll be, I'll be okay. So I, I have an advantage over some people. Um, Andy is, is away. Uh, he's not taking a vacation. He's not out on a, on a run or, or on a throw, whatever those things are called. Uh, he, is, uh, he is at an assessment weekend for the district, Church of the Nazarene here in Colorado, um, they have begun a, a program, they've been doing it for, I think, about 10 years in the denomination where someone, when they declare that they want to be, be, become a Nazarene pastor, they, in their first year of going through the educational process and so on, they are invited, uh, uh, pastor and spouse, to an assessment weekend where a number of people try to, try to talk about ministry, what it's like to to be in that job, and there's psychological testing involved, uh, counseling, and all kinds of stuff that I wish I'd had. It's kind of a neat thing. I was never trusted like Andy to be part of the assessment team, but I was a sender, and I, I think I sent about four different couples to this in California there. So he's, he's busy. He's not playing around. He's been at it since uh, Friday night, and it ends sometime around noon, I think, today. So... So I'm pinch-hitting today. This is, as I understand it, the second message that uh, you have in the series on the Gospel of John. Uh, many of you know that the New Testament is, it actually begins with four different books, and those books are called Gospels. Gospel simply means uh, good news. They present the good news about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, most, most authors, when they write a book, they have a purpose for writing that book. On the low end of scale, maybe they just want to make some money. On the other end of the scale, they have a message that they want to share. The Gospels were written to communicate the most meaningful message of all time. And each Gospel asks and answers the basic question, who is Jesus? All four present the message of Jesus and the answer to that question. Each, but each Gospel has a different feel and a a slightly different reason for which it was written. Let's look at that. The Gospel of of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and it presents a useful bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Matthew is really writing to the Jewish community, and he presents Jesus as the King of Kings. He emphasizes the royalty of Jesus. Now, the Gospel of Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, Uh, It tells more about the actions than it does about the teachings of Jesus. It is believed that Mark is based upon the preaching of Peter. Mark presents Jesus as the servant of the Lord. He emphasizes the ministry of Jesus. When you come to Luke, it's a companion volume to the book of Acts, which really tells the story of the early church. The author, author of Luke was a Gentile, he was a doctor, he was a careful historian, he also was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. 
he was there giving aid and comfort to Paul while Paul was in prison. Luke's gospel presents Jesus as the Son of Man, and, and it emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. And then the gospel of John. The gospel of John has been held in high honor, high, high honor for centuries. It's frequently recommended for new people to the faith, people who want to learn about Christianity. The gospel of John is the starting point for them. In fact, John frequently explains the actions and he explains the, the, the claims of Jesus. The gospel of John was written about 90 AD while the apostle John was serving as the pastor in the church at Ephesus. Ephesus at that time was located in Asia Minor. It's, it's now in modern-day Turkey. John presents Jesus as the chosen one, as the Son of God. Now, without talking about Mary, Joseph, shepherds, angels, Jesus in a manger, John emphasizes the incarnation, the incarnation, the fact that Jesus is God become man. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, wrote this. He said, in this book is set down the history of the Son of God dwelling among men. Now, I have a very personal reason for speaking out of the gospel and for, for, for loving this gospel. I, I like it, especially at this point in life, because an old man wrote it. That's exactly what I like it for. John had to be up there. He was, he was a totally qualified card-carrying member of AARP when, when he wrote this gospel. Several years ago, I was out taking pictures in California in an area called Oak Glen. It was near where we lived in Rancho Cucamonga. And I, I, uh, it was a place of, of apple orchards and, and farms, gift shops, restaurants. I went in to have lunch at one restaurant, and I noticed something that sounded really good on the senior menu. So I screwed up my courage, and I ordered that thing on the senior menu. Now, the the server, she, she took a little bit of time, and then she leaned down and she looked in my face and she said, you're not one of us, are you? And I said, yeah, but I, I'll go ahead and pay extra. I just really want that item on the senior menu. Now, I discovered last Wednesday that I don't have that problem anymore. I'm no longer called out as a senior pretender I went into Ace Hardware in Longmont to buy a light bulb. We love to go to Ace Hardware for some reason, and that's a problem in itself. When we have people visit us, we say, hey, you want to go over to Ace Hardware? They think we're a little nuts. But Ace Hardware sells more than hardware. Anyhow, I went to pay, and I gave the 20-something cashier my rewards card number, and then I reminded her to give me the senior discount because it was Wednesday. I was shocked when she said, I already gave it to you. <laughs> Apparently, I'm so old now that I no longer have to ask for the senior discount. I believe that the Apostle John was kind of at that point in life where he no longer had to ask for the discount. He was clearly one of us. Now, John's gospel has the mark of one who is reflecting on the meaning of all that he has seen and all that he has experienced in his lifetime as a follower of Jesus. He's also close enough to the next century to be thinking about the future of the church and, and how will they know what I've seen and what I've experienced? How will they know what Jesus is about? So in today's scripture, the Apostle John writes about the ministry of, of John the Baptist, 
Probably from now on when I use the word John, I'm going to mean John the Baptist. It's found in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. You can follow along in your Bibles or on your devices. There's also an insert there in the bulletin that has most of these verses on it. Or best, best method is up on the screen. But let's stand as I read. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Dear Lord, we ask that you would just speak to us, especially through your word today. We open our hearts. We're ready to hear what you have to say. And we give you praise. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, when Andy first asked me to preach on this Sunday, uh, he asked me, or he, when he first asked me to preach, he asked me to preach on the Sunday after New Year's. And I, I accepted immediately. I said, well, how hard could New Year's be? I've, I've preached 40 different series, 40 different sermons over those years on New Year's. That, that's a piece of cake. Then he texted me several weeks later, and he said, uh, could you preach on January 22? And he was starting a series on the Gospel of John, so could I preach the John the Baptist section in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34? As usual, I drug my feet on responding to Andy because that would mean I'd have to do a little bit of work. And I, and I, I said, yes, Lee. I, when, he, when he called me back, I said, yes, mostly out of embarrassment for being so slow to reply. I thought, well, how hard could this be? I, I've, I've preached on this before. There's all that good stuff in there about... Uh, him being born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, that, all that stuff in Luke. Uh, there's how he was dressed, how he, how he lived his life in the wilderness. There's the significance of him baptizing Jesus. But then I read the accounts. 
Matthew is emphasizing the fulfillment of prophecy. Mark was quick and succinct, like how you'd tell it if you were trying to fit it into the story of the whole gospel message. Luke takes two verses just to give you the names of the secular rulers at the time. He's a historian. But then John's account, I go, I haven't read this very closely. Um, It was different. John was very different. It was devoid of most of the history that I love. The apostle doesn't give the account of Jesus' baptism. That That was a shock to me. Jesus kind of comes into the scene about 40 days, after his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness. But true to form, John presented, Jesus is presented as God become man in the person of Jesus, God's son. John the Baptist is the one who gives a personal witness to this claim. John, the gospel of John is all about personal witness. The first thing that caught my attention as I tried to to take in this passage was all the questions that were thrown at John the Baptist. Now, I know that Rick spoke on on the Matthew account of this story uh, several weeks ago, and I think we saw the same thing. We saw these questions. Jesus is clearly presented as God's son, but here in this passage, we hear all of these questions coming at John the Baptist. They're persistent. They're probing. What about you? Who are you? What if somebody came at you and said, who are you? How do you identify yourself? Would you, would you talk about your strong sense of identity? Or do you perhaps have a weak sense of identity? Do you identify yourself by your family background, by your job, your wealth, your friends? John faced those questions and, wor- and worse. So, who is John the Baptist? Let's ask that question. In our passage today, we see that John the Baptist has some priests and Levites who are playing a guessing game with him. They're sent from Jerusalem to find out who John was. Now, already John had gained a reputation. He was an unruly sort. He was dressed like the first century version of somebody who'd been months in the back country of the Rocky Mountains. And, and here he is. You, you, if you got baptized, you want to be sure you weren't downwind. Uh, he, he was a rough dude. His message, his proclamation was sharp. It was demanding. No one who heard John preach could mistake what he was saying. He was clear. He was uncompromising. He openly criticized the ruler of that area, Herod, because he took up with his brother's wife. He told the Jews that being children of Abraham was meaningless. Heritage and family connections meant nothing. Power meant nothing to John. He made it clear that nothing but a humble and a sincere heart was of any significance. His message was one of repentance for sin. He called for a radical life change, a radical turnaround. But these priests and Levites wanted to know who John is. They, they want to pin him down. They want to get a handle on him. Knowing who he, who he is would help them know how to respond to him. These leaders see John as a threat. So they refuse to go away without an answer. Who are you, they ask. Rather than telling them who he is, he tells them who he's not. In verses 20 and 21, he did not fail to confess, but confess freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Now, clearly those sent to interrogate John thought that he had something to do with the Messiah. 
both Elijah and the prophet, they were figures that people always mentioned when they were talking about their expectations of the coming Messiah. Old Testament prophecy had raised these questions and these expectations. Malachi 4 verse 5 says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of, of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So in the minds of John's questioners, Elijah was supposed to appear and herald the coming of the Messiah. Now, years earlier, Moses had said something like this as well. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses, from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. The people of Israel had these messianic expectations of this prophet who was like Moses. Was John the return of Elijah? Was John the return of Moses? Was John the Baptist the expected Messiah? Now, John evades all of these identifications. He says no to all of the above. In fact, he refuses almost any identification. But the priests and the Levites aren't quite finished. They demanded that John give them something to go on, some piece of information that they could take back to their superiors. I I like the Message Bible paraphrase of this. They say, tell us something, anything about yourself. Our passage says in verse 23, John replied with the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. So John answers them from Scripture, from Isaiah 40, verse 3, to be exact. He's saying, I'm the voice referred to in Isaiah's prophecy. He was on the scene to prepare others for the coming of Messiah. But for the religious leaders, what he says is not an answer. But John was on fire with his message. Mark's gospel identifies the message as one of good news, of calling the people of Israel to repentance, to receive the forgiveness of sins. John was bold. He was focused. Earlier in the passage that Andy used last week, in verses 6 through 8 in John, It says, there was a man, he's talking about John the Baptist, sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So John himself was not the light, but he was intent on witnessing to that light. The center of his attention was the promised one for whom he was preparing the people. The religious leaders continue their questions in verses 20 through 27. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He's one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. You see, his eyes were fixed on the one, the straps of whose sandals he was not worthy to untie. At the heart of John the Baptist's passion was a someone. It was Jesus. He was literally in awe of Jesus. This is the same thing that Jesus would... This is the very same Jesus who later in John's gospel would remove the sandals of his disciples 
in order to wash their feet. The driving force of John's preaching and his mission was Jesus. He saw himself as preparing the way for Jesus. John was baptizing with water, preaching repentance and forgiveness. But at the end of the day, Jesus was his message. God had revealed to John that this Jesus was the Son of God who'd come to the world. He'd come, he, he, this comes into focus the next day in this passage. Look at verses 29 through 31. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. It had been revealed to John that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Now, for John's listeners, the phrase Lamb of God echoed the sacrificial lambs of the temple and the Passover lamb in the Exodus account. This was an Old Testament connection with the coming Messiah. It had also been revealed to John that Jesus existed before John the Baptist himself was even born. In fact, he existed from creation itself. Listen to the vision that John witnessed to that took place when he baptized Jesus some 40 plus days before. Verses 32 through 34. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now, in this vision, it was revealed to John that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. John himself only baptized with water. John knew that he himself was not the Messiah, that whoever he was and whatever he did, he was completely secondary to Jesus. Knowing this, John willingly and totally identified himself with Jesus. He proclaimed, this is God's chosen one. Other translations say it boldly, this is the Son of God. You notice that at every turn, when given the chance, John points away from himself to Jesus. Even when he quotes Isaiah and refers to himself as the voice in the wilderness, he makes sure that those listening know that he is simply preparing the way for the Lord. John was not the Messiah. He didn't want there to be any confusion on this point. So when the priests and Levites questioned his baptizing, he quickly downplayed himself and attempted to draw attention to the one who would follow him. John was self-denying. He was Christ-focused. He witnessed powerfully to Jesus as a son of God. He knew who he was. He was called by God to prepare the way, to prepare the people of Israel to receive Jesus, to be ready for his message. He knew the difference between himself and Jesus. John knew Jesus' baptism was with the Holy Spirit and that that would remold the hearts of the people. The Holy Spirit would change the motive of people's hearts from one of self-centeredness to one of love. John knew his place. 
He knew that being a witness to Jesus meant drawing attention away from himself toward Jesus. When he finally offers information about who he is, he identifies himself simply as the one called to make straight the way of the Lord. John knows it's the identity of Jesus that determines his own identity, that determines his own mission and his own life. So here's the question for all of us. Who are we? I began by asking you to identify yourself. From what source do you get your identity? Is it from your job or your career? Is it, is it from your spouse, being a parent, from your standing in your community or in this church? There are endless ways that we can form our identity, our sense of self. My deeper question is, who are we as a church? Who are we as followers of Jesus Christ? Now, to refine that question a bit more, are we stuck in the baptism of John that was repentance, confession, and forgiveness? You know, that can be a cycle. I I agree that that should be done on a regular basis, but it can be a cycle from which we move no further. Or have we opened our hearts to the work of love and acceptance and forgiveness that marks the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a follower of Jesus? There's an incredible contrast in this account that also exists in us, and it exists in the church today. The religious authorities were questioning John because he represented a disturbance in the force from what was the norm of temple worship and practice. Why was John out there baptizing? People came to the temple. They washed in the designated pools. They brought sacrifices to atone for their sin. It had been that way for years and years and years. Why was John stepping out of the norm? By what authority was he baptizing? Who are you, John? You're not one of us, are you? But if someone were to approach you as the priests and Levites approached John and asked, who are you? Give us an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What would you answer? How would you respond? Better yet, how should each of us respond to such a question? Who are we? Who are we as the followers of Jesus? Note the different approach in these two churches. Her name was Lisa. She was 29 years old, the mother of two toddlers, not a churchgoer, but feeling the need somehow to find a church for herself and her children. You know, she said, I'm still trying to figure this Jesus thing out. One day she attended a women's Bible study at a church fairly close to where she lived. The study leader spoke for a while, and then the focus shifted to the conversations at each of the tables where the people were sitting. I was probably the youngest one at my table, Lisa said, but we were getting along pretty well. We were talking about sex, intimacy, pregnancy, because that was the focus of the study that day. I told them about a friend of mine, 20 years old. Her boyfriend got her pregnant, and then when he found out, he left her. She can't support herself, let alone a baby, and she can't go to any family for help because she's too humiliated for them to know. And they wouldn't accept her anyway. She's really struggling. 
I told them she's thinking about having an abortion. And I told the women at the table with me that under the circumstances, I could understand why my friend would be thinking that. At that point, Lisa said, the entire conversation shifted. All the women, instead of talking with me, started talking at me about how wrong it was for my friend to even be thinking about an abortion and that I needed to rethink my own feelings about it. I left remembering why I wasn't a churchgoer. What those women didn't know was that when I was about my friend's age, I had an abortion. It wasn't an experience I would wish on anyone. I know what my friend is feeling, but I'm pretty certain that the women at that table didn't have a clue. But that didn't stop them from judging me or my friend. Her name was Beth. She bounced from foster home to foster home her entire life. She'd been raped, beaten, abandoned, and was sleeping on the streets. And she was pregnant. One day out of desperation, she went into a church, not because she expected them to do anything for her. She'd never, ever been a churchgoer. All she really wanted was just for an hour or so to be someplace warm, to sit on something other than concrete. When people began to approach her, she withdrew. She knew someone like her didn't really belong in a place like that, and she was afraid they'd ask her to leave. But they didn't. They just welcomed her. She went back and as they, as they welcomed her again, and even as they came to know more about her, about her situation, they kept welcoming her. One Sunday after worship, one of the women in the congregation, she'd come to know, told Beth that she had something for her. Beth followed the woman as she led her to a part of the church she'd never seen before, to a room the woman called the parlor. The parlor, it turned out, was full of people who'd welcomed her over the weeks. It was full of balloons and flowers and packages, which Beth opened to find onesies, embroidered blankets, diapers, hats, booties, and a really big package, a stroller. Not once, Beth said, had they ever said anything about me being pregnant or unmarried or on the streets. All they ever said was that they were so glad I was there and what a gift it was to them to be able to help me and my baby. While Lisa and Beth came from different circumstances and they were living very different lives, what they shared was a great need for acceptance and compassion. Had they both made mistakes in their choices? Undoubtedly. Could the case be made that they both, in their own ways, needed to repent? Of course. But that judgment is not our responsibility, but God's. And before repentance, they first of all needed simple compassion. They needed to be accepted. They needed to know that they were loved. Those at the church Lisa attended led with judgment and a call to repent or get right before you can be one of us. But the folks at the church Beth found, they led with love and grace and the peace 
of Jesus. Their words and their actions said, come on in. Here is a place where you'll find compassion and acceptance. You're welcome here. They were content to worry about the spiritual stuff later on. Who are you? Who are you as Jesus' followers? We're called to identify ourselves completely with Jesus. We should be much less concerned with letting people know who we are than we are with letting them see who Jesus is in us. One person said it would be well if there were as great a similarity between the life of Christ and the life of Christians as there is between a just copy and the original, what he was by nature. We should be by grace. In John chapter 3, there's a story about some of John the Baptist's disciples. And they're having a discussion with others. This discussion was prompted by the fact that Jesus' ministry had begun and, and Jesus' own disciples were now baptizing others. They approach John and they want to know whether Jesus has now become a competitor and whether they should worry that he will take attention away from John's ministry. John would have none of this. Referring to Jesus as the bridegroom and to himself as the bridegroom's friend, he says in John 3, verses 29 through 30, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less he must become greater. I must become less. These words spoken by John ought to be our words. They ought to be our prayer as well. The hope of each follower of Jesus is for him to be formed in us. Through the power of the Spirit, the character of Jesus is daily being shaped and seen in each Jesus follower. Even if only in fits and starts, That's what Scripture means by bearing the fruit of the Spirit in us. We are being remade into His his image. Who we are, each one of us, should be primarily determined by our relationship with Jesus and the Spirit's work in our lives. It is who we are in Jesus, children of God, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, that matters most of all. Our identity in Jesus means that we are called to be humble, self-denying servants of the Son of God, just like John the Baptist. That doesn't mean we're all to become prophets and evangelists and proclaiming and preaching, traveling from city to city, living out in the wilderness in some cases. We are called to testify and witness to Jesus from whatever, from wherever we are using the unique gifts that God has given to each of us. God wants it that way. Because wherever we are, there are people that need us to be Jesus to them. As a parent, you can identify with Jesus by letting your little ones come to him just as Jesus allowed. As a husband or wife, you can identify with Jesus through the acts of selfless sacrifice and love and faithfulness. 
As a child, you can identify with Jesus who was obedient to his Father in heaven. As a neighbor, you can identify with Jesus by loving those that no one else is willing to love. To be a witness like this, we need to identify ourselves with Jesus and surrender completely to him. This is a daily, an ongoing discipline that requires prayer and study of Scripture and a community of believers to be a part of. Identifying ourselves with Jesus means, of course, knowing who Jesus is. Knowing who Jesus is involves watching him closely. It involves allowing the Holy Spirit to cleanse us, to empower us, so that we can extend the love and acceptance and forgiveness of Jesus to others. Already we know that Jesus is the Word made flesh with God from all eternity. We know that He is the Son of God, sent to take away the sin of the world. We know that He is the light shining in the darkness. He is the Lamb of God, a a symbol of sacrifice, the sacrifice He would become on the cross to bring about the forgiveness and the resurrection to new life that we remember and celebrate at His table today. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the communion meal. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're invited to participate. If you don't, you don't have to be a member of, of this local church. In fact, if you're opening your life to Jesus, you're coming back to him, or, or you know just that much about him. You belong at this table with everybody else. After we pray, you're invited to come down these side aisles and uh, and receive a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. I'll say, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ shed for you. You may answer with the words, thanks be to God, if you wish, and then return back to your seats by the far aisles. There's also gluten-free bread in the middle, and uh, if you need that, you can use it there in the center of the tray. For those unable to come forward, our communion usher will come to you. If you just raise your hand, uh, she'll come down from the back and bring the elements to you. You are the object of God's love, acceptance, and forgiveness. Jesus first invited his followers to share the meal with him just before he went to the cross to provide our freedom and our forgiveness. He knew his body, like this bread, would be broken for us. He knew his life's blood would be poured out on the cross for us. This meal is a reminder of the grace and the salvation that Jesus freely gives to his followers. I'm going to pray, and then we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together.